Hello everyone and welcome once again to Let's Talk About Public Code, a show where we invite members of our community who are actively using public code in their code bases. My name is Alba Roza and I am one of the code base stewards that works at the Foundation for Public Code. My co-host Yanni Nainali couldn't do it today, so uh, I'm joined by another colleague of mine, Eric Herman, lead code base steward for quality at the Foundation for Public Code. Hello, Eric. Hi, Alba. Yeah, nice to have you here in this episode, Eric. Yeah. This edition is it's also pretty special, if I might say, to us because this is our first anniversary, the first anniversary of this podcast. Yeah, and it's been a year and we are celebrating with Gabriela Gomez-Mont, who has joined as a member of the newly formed Strategic Council for the Foundation for Public Code. She is the founder of Experimentalista, as well as the former chief executive creative sorry, officer for Mexico City and founder of Laboratorio para la Ciudad, the award-winning experimental arm and creative think tank of the Mexico City government, reporting to the mayor. And uh, yeah, now let's get to it. Uh, shall we bring her on? Yeah, yeah, please. Uh, welcome, Gabriela. Hello, everybody, and happy birthday, happy anniversary. <laughs> yeah, nice to have you here, Gabriela. Yeah, so I would like to start the, this interview, Gabriela, by asking you, first of all, how did you get in touch with this uh, GovTech ecosystem? What's the area you, you currently found more interesting? Is it, I don't know, smart cities, future of cities, GovTech? So what area are we talking about when we are defining your professional experience? Well, I think my professional experience started um, when my my role as, uh, in government started as well. So as you mentioned, I was the founder and director of Laboratorio para la Ciudad, which was the uh, experimental arm slash creative think tank of the Mexico City government. And um, in many ways, we even though we were never a digital-first, technology-first creative unit, we were very much about participatory practices and urban experiments that had to do with everything from public space, but also the digital sphere. We definitely found that technology was incredible amplifier and articulator of citizen voices. You know, I, I think that there's many people that have said out there that perhaps democracy, not representative democracy where you vote every so often, but a much more participatory democracy was actually waiting for many of the tools that the digital realm actually offers up. So when we started uh, in 2013 at the lab, um, Mexico City didn't necessarily have a ecosystem, so to speak, in, in around civic tech. Um, if you ask people, okay, like, are, are you, you know, then nobody would self-define as that. But then we partnered, um, one of the very first things actually that we did at the lab was partner with Code for America, that as you probably know, has been for a long time now, actually inserting um, people that are experts in technology and digital everything within governments to work on them on very specific projects for the public good. And so we were actually the first city outside of the U.S. to develop a Code for project. So we were code for Mexico City. And to our huge surprise, when we put out a call for proposals, even though there was no ecosystem to speak of, we actually had more than 360 people applying, if I remember correctly. And you know, you have to understand that A, in Mexico City, there is a huge discontent and mistrust between public institutions and citizens. B, there was, as I mentioned, nobody really self-defining as such. And then, in, so in our first year, it was really interesting to see that if you think that Code for America was on a national basis, whereas Code for Mexico City was very much a city level, 
our first call for proposals ended up being more competitive than Code for America in many of its first years. So that really just like blew our minds. And we thought, okay, there is such potential here because there might not be an ecosystem, but there is at the very least almost 400 individuals that are interested in these subjects. So that started kind of like a really interesting long journey with a lot of lessons in between of what it actually entails to have people both thinking in the space, but also creating public value. Because many times, as you well know, there's amazing ideas. But as many people have said, if you throw technology at things, it doesn't necessarily mean it'll solve it. You can have an amazing platform, an amazing idea. And if you don't do a whole social structuring around this and have people participating and creating that other side of the scaffolding, then you basically have nothing. Like you have an empty shell of a something, specifically because civic tech is so much about articulating a wider society in different ways. No? So that that was my first entry point, I think. And it was incredibly interesting. Again, like a lot of lessons that I could go on for hours of what worked, what didn't. But nowadays, it's really interesting to see that there's a very healthy ecosystem in Mexico City. We also did the first data festival, Mexico City. And in our first edition by day four, we had 500 people signed up, 200 people on the waiting list. Second edition, more than 1,200 people signed up. And at that time, there was no open data on behalf of the, the government. So this was also our way of creating a community and stress testing, if you will, the data that we were putting out, as well as the APIs, because we also created the first APIs ever for Mexico City. And so it was truly fascinating to see how hungry people were to participate. And again, how much there is to add to the conversation on behalf of the digital technological scene. If you forward up to now, right now I'm very deep in research with Hivos Foundation here in the Netherlands on urban digital futures. Like we, we have the premise that both the urbanization as well as the digitalization of the world will be two of the biggest influencers on the future of cities. And I've been doing research, especially in the so-called global south, the emerging world or the majority world as a lot of people call it, which is true. And one of the, we've come to really interesting things that I, again, like I, I'll, I'll barely get into stuff, but needless to say, in terms of where I place myself and my positionality that you were asking for, I am, I, I mean, I have waged campaign after campaign, both as a public official and not, that we stop calling a digital agenda, a smart city agenda. Like I think it's too Latin with biases. There is a very specific imaginary that goes along with a smart city agenda. And I think it was on one hand, an amazing Trojan horse to get mayors wanting to be part of this digital transformation. And at the same time, it was a different type of Trojan horse, because now it seems that we're completely boxed into a very corporate way of understanding proprietary platforms and a corporate first agenda and slowly losing the need for the publicness of both the conversations, the imaginaries, the technology, and everything that has to do with the ethos that you know you guys are professing in so many ways of openness and collaborativeness and stewardship, which is a completely different realm. So I will keep on waging my campaign against the smart city. Again, everything digital is incredibly important, but we need, uh, I think, a lot more imaginative ways of entering this conversation that first starts with imploding the straitjackets, which are words. Wow, that's a great turn of phrase there, the straitjackets that are words. You, so you, you've, you did a bunch of these initiatives that, that have really novel aspects to them, but you also referenced that there was some templating on other things that had come before. 
were there some people involved, not only organization names like Good For Now, but were there some specific people that gave you inspiration or that perhaps you learned something from, mentored you in some way that helped you articulate the vision or, or, or crystallize the vision in your head? So everything that we did at the lab had a whole community around it. Like I, I love saying that part of the lab's job, or rather it's perhaps most important job was actually creating communities around our open-ended questions. Um, mm -hmm. So open source in that way as well. No, And I could never, ever cinch into a single person or a single organization just because every one of our agendas, because my team was divided into six teams that were very much the approach to the city that we had, so Open City, which was experiments in democracy and very similar to what you guys are doing. The Playful City, which explored play as a city-making tool, as well as saw Mexico City from a kid's perspective, because to our huge surprise, and we didn't know this, there's actually almost 5 million kids under age 14 in the metropolitan area of Mexico City. So that's like a whole Finland, just like with kids. Um, and we had never necessarily approached the city this way. Pedestrian city, which was uh, like, you know, how do you rethink the city, like, like megalopolis for, uh, from a pedestrian view? And I, I could go on. So th there were six of these. So there were many lessons in between. A, uh, many times we were influenced just as much by people doing technology as well as people doing social projects and, and issues. I do think that in many ways, the conversation is easy to get skewed when you start thinking digital first instead of public value and public good. And then you figure out how technology can help articulate and amplify your agendas. Um, but there were definitely some very, very brave and hardworking individuals that were in, uh, incredibly influential in the specific things that we actually developed. Because on one hand, we were doing these open calls to develop civic tech and then following the lead of, of other communities. So we did everything with several organizations, everything from um, using AI to be able to make the, the bus routes that service the more marginalized communities more efficient, like the official buses of Mexico City, to being able to integrate also using both AI as well as cheap sensing equipment. How could we integrate like uh, community-based data on the, uh, on the air quality of Mexico City into the official, incredibly sophisticated air quality system that Mexico City has? But so we wouldn't be working only with averages, but also with dynamic readings on the ground, et cetera, et cetera. But that said, like, you know, these were things that we put out calls for proposals and we had super talented people helping us. But at the same time, we actually also developed our own stuff. So uh, when we started, before this even had a name, we were doing, or I think it didn't have a name or it was in its beginning stages of crowd law, which is, you know, how do you draft laws and policy collaboratively? I had at the time a fellowship at the MIT, the director's fellowship at MIT. And Travis Rich, who was part of the Knowledge Studio at the time, he had a platform, an upcoming platform that was going to be for academic peer-to-peer -peer reviews. And it hadn't even come out. And when I saw that, I was like, Travis, this is such an amazing tool for policy as well. Would you, we have like the Uber debates coming up. Can we actually change the, the objective of this and just like use it? Because it had some really interesting things, both of, you know, how you could get metadata from the comments, how you could find historical, like the history of how we had come up to specific data, to being able to embed everything from comments to videos, but also like a very user-friendly and very intuitive, but also super deep way of being able to gather the commenting as well as the content of the document and create a better way of understanding what was happening in terms of the policy level, right? And incorporating the comments of many, many people into, into policy or lawmaking. 
And he said yes. And we had like very little time because the Uber conversation was exploding in Mexico City. Like there were protests. There were a lot of violence. It was, you know, first page news as happens in many places, because one of the things that Uber does is fire up these conversations very smartly and slightly artificially. And it was truly interesting because that was part of a citywide debate where we had many organizations actually being able to add their two cents. And the policy that came out of Mexico City actually influenced the policy of the rest of Latin America. It's not perfect, but it was a good way forward. And then that same platform we used for as one of the ways that we had of crowdsourcing the Mexico City Constitution. We also used it for the first road safety plan of Mexico City, where we integrated more than 40 organizations and ended up, you know, um, saving or rather diminished bad, like serious accidents as well as deaths in 20%, almost 20% in under two years. So, you know, it was really interesting to see how in-house technology, because besides it was my young team of coders working with Travis's team, and then they did use it as an academic platform and Snowden as, you know, just like curious data. The first academic paper that he published was on the same platform that my team had up code. So, you know, they were super excited. It was like, Snowden use our code. And it was like, yeah, that's so cool. Um, but anyway, so projects like that, as well as others that I'll speak about, I think, uh, later on, gave us a, both a taste of how interesting it is to be able to open up the floor for other participants, as well as ourselves develop uh, civic tech within the lab. Gabriela, I am right now saying that in our YouTube, there's a person asking a question about the, this uh, Laboratorio para la Ciudad. And uh, this person is asking... In your opinion, which one of the labs projects you were involved in, which one had the biggest impact on the daily lives of uh, Mexico City inhabitants and what kind of impact was that? Super. Um, so I'd say, I mean, going back to the road safety plan, I think that if there are so many things that a city can and should do for its inhabitants, but perhaps the most important one in the end is saving lives, like, you know, all of the conversations After that, you know, you need uh, people that are alive to actually be able to have them. So the road safety plan that we actually ended up being able to diminish, as I mentioned, the serious accidents as well as the deaths in Mexico City, almost 20% was huge. Traffic incidents are actually the leading cause of preventable death amongst kids and adolescents in Mexico and the second leading cause of death in Mexico City. So this is this is actually pandemic level. Like, you know, we're all scared of the pandemic, but when you see the numbers of traffic incidents, not only in Mexico City, but the world over, it's actually a really, really serious thing that we don't necessarily take as an important critical health concern. And it is. So that was incredibly gratifying in so many ways. And then one thing that I think we will see its evolution for many, many decades to come that we played a part in, like, of, of course, like this is again, like many people, my team that dedicated there, it was, you know, we were only 20 people, was also, I think, the Constitution. Uh, the Constitution arguably is the most important legal document for a city to have. And it's really interesting because it had two components that we found incredibly important at the lab. One of them is being able to talk about urban imaginaries, like, you know, aspirations and, and how we dream of ourselves, if you will, being slightly corny. And also speak about the DNA of who we are and where do we come from and where, where do we want to go. So a constitution is that. It is a series of aspirations and ideals. But at the same time, constitution is the highest legal law that a city or a country can have. So being able to now have a constitution at the city level, and as a parenthesis, Mexico City has always traveled at a different speed from the rest of Mexico and even the continent. And I add the other North American countries like Canada and the U.S. in this. 
So we were one of the first cities to have everything from gay marriage, uh, abortion rights, et cetera, et cetera. And now on a constitutional level, we have gay marriage, gay adoption, abortion laws in place, some of the most sophisticated transsexual rights in the whole continent as well, euthanasia, which is you know still not even discussed in other places. And here we actually have constitutionally the right to choose if you have a serious illness when you think you should just like wrap up the story, which is which is us. Um, so this, I think, is an ever-evolving conversation. When the, I don't know if you guys saw when the caravan, it was, Trump was still in power and it was like a midterm elections and there was this huge caravan of migrants coming from Central America, fleeing from everything from political persecution to gangs and violence and whatnot. So, you know, very much worthy of what one would call sanctuary in other places and asylum. And uh, Article 20 of the Constitution that we also worked on, not crowdsourcing it, but actually as a team with the first mayor of Mexico City, Guatemoc Cárdenas and his team, who at the time was the Minister for Exterior Relationships. This law, on one, it's called Global City. And this law, on one hand, gives Mexico City the right to sign its international agreements bypassing federal laws, but also it's a new notion of urban diplomacy that was super interesting for us to work on as a geeky level. But then it's also sanctuary city. So the reason why the caravan... When it passed through Mexico City, it was uh, received not by military or police, but actually by humanitarian aid and by a caravan of ambulances and medics and clothes and how the temporal housing and whatnot was because of Article 20 of the Constitution. So in a way, I, I didn't work in government before that. Like my background is actually more in arts and cultural field. And my team, who was quite young, 28 years on average, for many of us, it was the first time. And I think we were all quite impressed with what an amazing tool for city making and for creating social and urban realities policy can be. Like, you know, these things that government has, that, you know, yes, to wieldy bureaucratic structures that we none of us know what to do with. But their toolkit is so fantastic at the same time for being able to mold these other urban social realities. So those, I think, are two interesting examples of stuff that we did and the impact that it has on multiple levels. Those are clearly very strong impact items. It makes me realize that I think a question that I probably should have put to you right out of the gate is, what is a chief creative officer? And, uh, and is this something that we're going to be seeing more of in more organizations? Um, so words are a first Trojan horse, right? Um, in Mexico, I'm not sure if this is similar here in the Netherlands and in other places. But when you have enter public service, you are quite constrained by the legal frameworks and what is called your mandate. So as a citizen, you can, if it, it's not written anywhere that you can't do something, you're legally allowed to do it. Like there has to be a law to prevent you from doing it. In government in Mexico, it's the other way around. If it is not specifically written that you can do something, then it's actually illegal for you to do it. And you're bypassing, well, you can get yourself into a lot of trouble. So what happens when you're actually the experimental arm of the government? You're actually supposed to be doing things that are unexpected for government and even unexpected for yourself. Like, you know, when I entered government, I never thought I'd be doing the type of projects that we did that, again, like spanned everything from changing laws to public interventions to working in some of the most marginalized areas with communities to crowdsourcing constitutions to city debates for Uber to blah, 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 no? So it was an intuition at the beginning, but then since, you know, as you well know, there's a lot of chief innovation officers in the world over. But the same thing as smart city, though different, I actually think innovation is a very important thing, but experimentation and innovation are different. 
I think, and it's different profiles. And I come more from arts and culture. And I half of my team came from urban social sciences. And the other so urban social political sciences and the other part came from humanity. So I had everything from urban geographers and AI, civic tech experts, political scientists, internationalists working hand in hand with artists, philosophers, historians, writers, designers, editors, architects, futurists, et cetera, et cetera. And everything we did sat in between. Because I think one of the issues of cities nowadays is that we're being incredibly technocratic. Like, you know, so many of these participatory projects are more about, okay, like, how do we solve for X, like a very specific thing, or sometimes, you know, just like this very innocuous thing of what color do you want your subway to be? Well, or do you want to feel safe? Yeah, of course, everybody wants to feel safe. But I think there's not that much going on in terms of how do we create a participatory scaffolding to decide what type of cities and societies we want to become. Um, so that, in a, in a sense, I think is something that the humanities brings to the table of going back to first principles and once again asking these big questions of saying, how do we want to live together? How do we want to move together? How do we want to be healthy together? And then you have, in our case, like a portfolio of best practices, communities to gather, experiments, et cetera, et cetera. So going back to your question, A, I didn't necessarily want even myself to start boxing myself into what a, a chief innovation officer does, because many times it's about public management, and I did not want to do public management. There was another area of the government that actually did that. So becoming a chief creative officer, I think, gave me both legal leeway to actually do quite a bit. Like my mandate was urban creativity and civic innovation. I mean, that's everything and nothing, right? Like you get to infuse it with meaning, which is something that I've loved my whole life. Like, you know, just, yes, I, I think it's, um, so that was, that was really interesting. And then the second bit, I also think it spoke a lot more to the heart of what we were trying to do as a team as well, of being a creative experimental office again, and not necessarily, uh, definitely not a digital office and definitely not an innovation office per se, even though again, like there, there were overlaps, but perhaps we were starting from a different space and incorporating that instead of the other way uh, round, if that makes sense. And to other cities, I've given, wow, so many talks of people writing me and saying like, hey, I work in city government or I'm an architect. Huh? We want you to convince Toronto, Montreal, blah, 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 that we need a chief creative officer. So there's a lot of interest, but I, I don't think any other city has actually created this specific role. There have been many labs that were created. Like we were the first in Latin America. Now there's eight, a little bit inspired actually by what we did in, in Mexico City, by the existence of us, at least because we were also quite different. So, yeah. It's interesting that you're also mentioning the international ecosystem, because the following question I would like to ask you, it's a little bit on that scope, because you've been working with several international organizations, right? So how do you perceive that uh, this civic tech slash, I don't know, future of cities has evolved in this time ever since you've started working here? Mm. So I think... Um, you know, in many ways, and, and I've talk, talked about this with Ben Cervney many times, I think the pandemic has brought about a really interesting and necessary conversation. I mean, it was at a big cost because it was a painful way of finally realizing this, but suddenly we're realizing that digital should be infrastructure. Like, you know, this should be access to digital means is as in this contemporary world as important as water and other type of services. So I think that that's actually a really interesting evolution of the conversation. I think for better and for worse, we're also less naive. And I mean, again, like as I mentioned, like we had a lot of uh, learning lessons, to put it nicely, at the beginning, in terms of what a civic tech ecosystem can and should be, because in a way, we have seen that 
some really lovely projects actually ended up closing down just because there was nobody to store it towards the future. So I think that one of the things that we're seeing, and you guys are definitely part of this, is that we perhaps need not only new um, new types of projects, but new type of in-between actors. In many ways, I, I find it interesting that when it comes to collaborative practices, creative coalitions, and uh, innovation in general, we still talk about like this three, many times four helix model that I'm sure you're aware of, of, you know, academia, government, company, civil society. But these are also these interesting boxes. And as you can tell by now, like one of the things that interests me the most in terms of this, a space of exploration are the gap between things. I think at the lab, we actually specialized in the gaps in many ways of, you know, the conversations that were not being had, the methodologies that were not being used the voices that were not being heard. And I think that I just like wish that there were more institutions such as yourself that were working at inhabiting those gaps, at working as that missing link where you can have like a really creative, ample ecosystem of people working on the ground with great projects, but maybe they shouldn't be the ones in charge of giving this sustainability 10 years into this conversation. But if that doesn't happen, then I think that instead of creating a space where these collaborations with governments that have to take this work very seriously become every time more frequent, then I think there's a little bit of growing pains on both ends of the civic tech people. You know, you don't necessarily want to stay with the same product or project for the next decade. On behalf of government, like if you don't have somebody that is continuously updating and understanding every time more deeply the social issues that you're trying to address, then in a certain sense, it becomes more superficial in terms of what it could do or implodes, right? Like, you know, who does the maintenance? So I think that this is something that becomes really interesting to me and the existence of institutions such as yourself, not that, not because you're here, but you know, it's, it's one of the reasons why I've been following what you guys are doing. And I think that there's many other roles and many other gaps to fill with uh, more shape-shifting actors, institutions, and whatnot that can help us push towards the future. So you mentioned working internationally, but also what we've learned is that many of us are now working remotely through this time. And uh, I imagine that you're finding that some of your collaborators are still your contacts from your former work, but they're, of course, going to be uh, half a day around the world from you. Uh, how has time zones played a role in the kinds of collaborations that you've been personally working in? And what tips would you give to maybe a civil servant who is looking to collaborate with a civil servant that's many time zones apart? So first of all, I actually think that um, one of the most interesting things in terms of governance and um, that I think is very relevant to this conversation on, on multiple levels is that now we're speaking of transboundary governance in many ways. I think that nowadays there's cities linking up to other city agendas and that might have more in common amongst themselves than they have with their national government or with other cities that are kilometers away. So when we were doing, working on, because another of our, my cities was uh, at the lab was Global City. So it was, you know, experiments on new notions of um, urban diplomacy and whatnot. I'm really enjoying this conversation around activist cities, if you will, of, of cities, let's say, such as Paris and Barcelona joining forces and suddenly saying, OK, we're actually going to do something about housing, even though housing or mobility, even though many times these agendas uh, have, unfortunately, a very big influence, many times more of the regional or national government than the city government. No, So being able to create these collaborations that span geographies and again, like this transboundary I mean, I'm not sure if in that case I would call it governance, but I, I think that this is such an interesting thing to be pursued every time deeper. So first to say, 
transnational collaborations, I'm all for it. Like that was so much of what we did. I think hyper-local solutions are needed, but the conversation should be incredibly transdisciplinary and incredibly transnational in many ways. Right now, it's kind of crazy because I, I haven't traveled that much, obviously, since the pandemic. So a lot of it went digital and I am working with Asia and the Americas and Europe. So sometimes it, it becomes very orderly because if it's only Latin America, I have the morning for desk work and for calls and whatnot. And then the meetings, the chunk of the meetings are in the afternoon. But then other times I'll wake up at 4 a.m. to talk to Da Nang in Vietnam and then end up like yesterday at 11 p.m. speaking to people in the U.S. or Bogota. So I think I could actually use some tips from you guys, to be honest, which is why I started saying, like, yes, let's do international collaboration because this is not a detriment. Like, I think we need to figure this out. But sometimes it works seamlessly and other times it's just like crazy, like, you know, these... 20 hour workdays on several time zones. And, you know, my, I'm sure you guys have that as well. The people on the other end are sometimes so fresh <laughs> because they're just like starting your more, their morning and it's like, Hey, how are you? And you're just like, wow, into your 11th of the day. Um, but I've been very intrigued because Ben has told me that about your processes in terms of, you know, how, how do you minimize in fact, the need to actually do a lot of calls and that the processes are very much based as well on open code and, uh, let's say GitHub meets real life and that I think you guys should be teaching us about. I would definitely want to learn. Well, we definitely don't have the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, but uh, we'll let you know once we, <laughs> once we, yeah. So uh, yeah, um, moving on with the questions. Yeah, I would like to know also, uh, you've mentioned already a couple of them, but I was curious to know if you could please share some resources or tips that uh, you would advise for a civil servant that wants to experiment with their city. So tips, um, resources, I think that there is a lot. I actually have, well, it's, I'm holding my laptop with it, so I can't show you, but there, well, I'll take it out. So I, I still have to read it, but I just got this, We the Possibility. As you can see, harnessing public entrepreneurship to solve our most urgent problems. It's Michael Weiss, who used to be the deputy mayor for the mayor of Boston. And he also was one of the co-founders of Urban Boston Mechanics, which was actually one of my counterparts in the U.S. that were amazing thinking partners in, in many ways. And the lab is in here, so I'm biased in recommending this. But I think that there's some really interesting literature out there. Uh, this is another one, actually, that I have here. What if? by Rob Hopkins. The lab is also in here. So again, like uh, this is, it's just because of what I have around me, but you know, it's, it's, uh, this is actually the importance of imagination. Like, you know, many times. So one of the things that we worked quite deeply on in terms of the lab is political imagination. Again, we were very much against this technocratic first or this optimizing for efficiency and productivity. It's important, but I think, you know, we should be optimizing for public value and civics and then efficiency and productivity have a role in that, but they should never come first. And I think we've forgotten that. And I actually think going to your other question, smart cities have had a lot to do with that order of things and a corporate agenda. But what Rob does in his book is actually make a really interesting case of how important imagination is actually for everything from mental well-being to social projects to a more political agenda. So this one I would highly recommend because it has all sorts of really interesting research of everything of how your amygdala works and what happens when you're put under pressure. Because, you know, we also have to question who has the right to imagine, like who has the time and the right and the mental space to imagine. And so, you know, how do we democratize imagination? 
but then some incredibly specific and super interesting projects that have had a very interesting impact that come at things from a very different angle that, as I was mentioning, perhaps incorporate a lot more these philosophical questions and then add the layer of of problem solvers, if you will, but do both at once. And then there's, and what would I suggest? Like, so there's a lot of reading material out there, which is quite interesting. And then what would I suggest is basically, um, I find it quite interesting to develop within government a safe space for experimentation. So, you know, sometimes that can take the form of a lab, which is great. Other times it can be having like um, trusted partners that can take on the just like the risk, if you will, of experimenting in good ways. And that, that is everything from universities to organizations to NGOs and whatnot. I think that being able to define a public agenda and what are your priorities and why that, as I mentioned before, take into account both your DNA, like who you have been as a city and what your strengths are, but also who you would wish to become based on that DNA is, is incredibly interesting because then you can start create coalitions of the willing and gathering those communities around questions that I was mentioning. So I think that many times government has become very inward looking. And I think that uh, there's a certain porosity that is needed and a certain like, you know, working as open systems, if you will, where you can in integrate very different ways of knowing of very different populations that I find is, is super interesting. And talking about those ways of knowing, that's another of my recommendations is I think given the urgency of the things that one deals with when you are in government, it gets very easy to get stuck behind the desk. And I do think that the being able to um, work with communities on the ground and hear them out and be have your ear to the ground becomes incredibly interesting, not only as a listening mechanism, but also, and I know this word is almost trite nowadays, but I still think that there's a lot of power in it in terms of co-creation, of, of really sitting with your constituency and thinking out loud and imagining out loud with them, I think is incredibly interesting. But you do need a certain skill set. So how do you create these spaces or collaborations again that actually give the government a space and a territory where they can become otherwise, if you will, where, where they can experiment a different way of doing government, of doing politics, doing social, urban, while, and then being able to, to, once you have like those experiments and like, then how does that happen at a larger, uh, at a larger scale? Last but not least, and this is also very much something that I'm interested in nowadays with Experimentalista, it's also about um, emergent knowledge. Many times we think that if you have a pressing issue, it's already, I guess, uh, courageous enough of government to bring in people from outside of government and find those collaborators. But what happens when there's issues that there's no experts really out there? So, you know, crowdsourcing the Mexico City Constitution is, is an example. Like, who do you bring in? We were the first to do so. So it was in a way, um, it was up to us to become, quote unquote, the experts. So how do you actually build teams and conversations that are transdisciplinary in, in nature and that knowledge emerges within the gaps and of disciplines, of talents, of people? How do you make that as multifaceted as possible? But also, how do you learn how to create a language that will bridge these different worldviews. Because I've, I find that many times uh, I've been in places where there's this super amazing talent and you'd think that if you put in a brilliant scientist and a brilliant artist, whatever, something grand is bound to happen. Not really, because many times we end up watering our own language to a minimum common denominator to make ourselves understood. So I actually think that that is a talent and a skill set, which is also, again, like one of these in-between actors that I think is also missing here 
or how do you act as a translator so that rather it's the contrary, like the sum of the parts is larger than the whole, and really think that it, for many of the issues facing humankind right now, we, we will need emerging knowledge. Like there is no expertise. You need teams that learn how to learn. And, you know, the evolution of that that conceptually tickles my brain, but I still don't know how it works in reality, is I also feel that on one hand, in terms of the digital realm, we are seeing that the world is being splintered apart through all of these, you know, fake news and very subjective realities and QAnon and, I mean, just some crazy stuff going on and Bill Gates and 5G and whatnot. <laughs> and at the same time, you know, it's we're, we're also creating a monolithic digital earth, right? Like, you know, we have very few companies from even fewer cities or countries actually creating the whole structure for the rest of the world. So, you know, if I transpose interoperability in the digital realm into the social realm, like I'm right now, I'm very curious about heterotopias, like, you know, how, as the Zapatistas in Mexico would say, is a world where many worlds can exist, but, you know, you don't want reality to splinter apart. So how can you have different cosmovisions, different ethos, different heterotopias working, but still interacting with a wider whole? So I think that that's like a really interesting challenge that perhaps there will be a lot of metaphors to be taken from the digital realm, like hopefully again, like not completely copy paste because then we end up with again, like technocratic everything that I don't think is the way forward. But there is like a really interesting, I think, uh, explorative challenge there in terms of how we can make this, um, this happen. So a paradox is, you know, right now a very painful paradox becomes rather a multiplicity and a polyphony of possibilities and voices instead of a cacophony that implodes onto itself. Nice. Extremely well put. My head is filling with uh, things from code that I think could be metaphors with uh, interfaces and APIs, but I will hold that for uh, a different conversation. You mentioned uh, Experimentalista. Now, obviously, you should tell us a little bit about that. Gladly. So Experimentalista is a pandemic baby <laughs> in many ways. I also had one of those and it's Dutch, <laughs> which is, comes to a big surprise to me. Um, <laughs> because I, so I had been like after I left government, I supposedly going to take a sabbatical, but then I started getting calls and I left with a tiny suitcase, supposedly for a month. And then I never went back. So it ended up being, this is very un-PC of me to say, but it was joyful. So, oh, well. Um, I, it ended up being 40 cities and five continents. So at the very least, you know, when the pandemic came, I had, you know, I, I had uh, well-worn shoes, if you will. And so Experimentalista was born out of many of these experiences. And um, I, the border started closing around me when I arrived here in Amsterdam. So I'm still here like a year and a half later. And so I've set up a company here uh, that's called Experimentalista. And it is a creative urban studio that specializes in political imagination, systems change, and uh, a whole series of, of things, working with many cities internationally. Um, and again, like very interested in having a public agenda and political imagination be at the forefront, urban imaginaries. And then how do you backtrack from that to figure out what your needs are? So right now I'm working with, um, I think right now my the thing that explodes my brain and in many ways my heart is Bogota that they're they have this super interesting question which is how do you restructure a whole city around care so instead of GDP and again like optimizing for efficiency like if if we did care full cities or what does that actually look like no um so obviously the conversation starts with economies of care which is about the unpaid work that falls disproportionately on shoulders of women 
And there's a whole thing in terms of political theory and feminist economies that I won't get into. But needless to say, when people say like, oh, yeah, well, you know, she doesn't work or 70% of women don't work. It's like, no, like, you know, most every woman work. It's just like 70% of the unpaid work is actually done by women. So how do we start thinking of incorporating this into our notions of society? So, you know, there's a lot of economic thought that goes into it, most definitely. But it's also social, because in a certain sense, if we structured our societies around care, we would probably have like very different social articulations, but also different government services. And what Bogota is doing is thinking about this not only from new government services, but even land use. And how do you actually create not only vertical ties, which are government civil society, but how do you help instigate horizontal ties as well, which is things that we saw in the pandemic and really interesting conversations around mutual aid and the neighborhood unit and the micropolitics and all sorts of things, uh, which I find absolutely fascinating. Because again, like it's a completely different entry point into thinking about cities from a social lens. Very practical, but also very philosophical in nature, which I love. And then I'm also working with Helsinki uh, on new typologies for civic public spaces and Danang on night economies and urban digital futures, as I mentioned, the world over and uh, long termism uh, with a foundation in the UK and the list goes on. But we have kind of like four things uh, or many things that we put on the table. One of them is experimentalista, experimental, you know, the need for experimental processes at the same time, knowing that you cannot only stay in the experimental, but this actually needs to be designed to create a life of its own, if you will, to, to acquire life of its own. Urban task forces, which is how do you put together transdisciplinary teams, both hyper-local, but also, again, like with this, this influx of what is happening internationally. Emerging knowledge studio, which is what I mentioned of how do you create knowledge in a place that doesn't exist. The kind of like a pop-up academia, because I do a lot of training for teams and whatnot. So how do you actually build capacity within a team at the same time that you layer it with expertise, both local and international, but again, like highly transdisciplinary, where having artists, philosophers, social scientists, like wrapping, you know, just like the outer edges of a project becomes super interesting and also gives you new entry points. And uh, last but not least, the creative urban studio, which is a little bit what I was mentioning about being able to do everything from narrative strategies to ex-professo civic tech stuff and whatnot. So the pandemic, to be honest, it's been right now more desk research, but I am getting so antsy to get my hands in the ground because that was the amazing thing about the lab. This was not theoretical. Like this was not, oh, we believe the participatory practices are that, like, you know, with the Uber thing, like I would have like a whole huge protest outside of my office. So you know, it's, it's a very quick conversation with reality, sometimes almost too much so. So it was not hypothetical. And I think that hypothetical has a great space because it's the thinking process and, you know, being able to, to drink from many places, from academia, the right to the city, which is in our constitution, which has like this amazing philosophical background from Henri Lefebvre to David Harvey. But then what does it actually mean when we think about the kids' agenda in Mexico City? So right now I am fortunately, which I was hungry for, starting the next stage, which is all of the research that has happened in the two years of the pandemic, is now landing into the ground with uh, prototypes and experiments with several of the cities, the cities that I've mentioned. So I'll have news for you in about six months about how that goes when it meets reality. Gabriela, it's kind of important to us, the foundation, because we've announced recently, uh, actually it was yesterday, if I uh, recall correctly, that the creation of a new strategic council 
And uh, it happens that you are the first public member that's being announced. So what can you tell us about that? I'm so happy. <laughs> <laughs> I have had brilliant conversations with Ben um, that have been very thought-provoking. And what better to be able to officially partner to have these thought-provoking conversations. And why, why I'm super happy to join is, I mentioned, like, I, I really do think that we need to start thinking about new roles and new ways of being, like a very different ethos to what has been happening. So the notions of stewardship, of returning conversations to the, the civic, the commons, the public, um, to knowing that this needs to be infrastructure, knowing that we should be optimizing not for efficiency and productivity, but for public value and civics, and what type of organizations we need for that, I think is a really important conversation nowadays. So you know, I, I think that many of the things that you guys are doing and will be doing will be experimental in nature. So I'm hoping that the experience that I had in Mexico City, uh, which is not for the faint-hearted in many ways, because you know it's one of the most fascinating but also more, most complex cities in the world, will hopefully be useful as we, you know, together think out loud to define these more experimental paths of of how you guys go forward. So I'm super overjoyed to be part of um, part of your family. Excellent. Okay, very quick before you leave us, what person would you like to see on a future episode of our podcast here? Oh, great question. There's so many, but I would say um, the first person that comes to my mind because I spoke about him recently to Ben would be Dan Hill. Dan Hill was one of the co-founders of one of the other labs that no longer exists, but that was super interesting to us and, and very inspiring, which was the Helsinki Design Lab. But now he's also working with um, Swedish government in the One Minute City. And he's very knowledgeable about everything digital, but I think that his social urban first approach and that then layers the digital is exactly what is needed. Um, you know, I think we have enough people thinking about the digital realm as a space that hovers above everything else. And I think that we need people like Dan that create bridges between both worlds. Um, so I take him. Thank you. Nice one. So yeah, unfortunately, I think this is uh, time to wrap up. Thank you all for your time, especially you, Gabriela. We're very, very glad that you could make it today and talk a little bit with us. Of course, thank you to Eric for joining me and the men in the shadows, the men in the that it's controlling everything today, and this uh, yeah, that is making sure that everything is working perfectly. Uh, also, my colleague Felix Fassen, he is also there. So thank you all of you for for being here today. Well, thank you and feliz cumpleaños de vuelta. <laughs> thank you, thank you. And uh, yeah, we will be back more or less in a month. And uh, yeah, uh, if you want to engage in even more interactive sessions, you can join us uh, in our community calls, uh, which you can sign up for in the link in the footer in our site, publico.net. Bye and thank you all for watching.